glad that you came. We're going to talk this morning about, <clears throat> about developing the conductor's dream, how score study and, and, uh, and spending some time with the music itself will influence our rehearsals. And we're going to use um, later on today in my session on efficient and effective rehearsals the same music that we will talk about this morning, and then we'll rehearse it this afternoon with the group. And, Hopefully there'll be enough people there to actually sing it and um, see how that has affected, well, what we do this morning, how that would affect what we do this yesterday. Um, I would uh, encourage us to look for just a minute at the bibliography that was passed out. Um, I wanted to highlight just a few things. <clears throat> there are lots and lots of possibilities on here. Things that might be applicable to you, but other things that might not be. But I just want to point out a few um, that I think are really helpful. On the first page under vocal technique, the day that David's, Julia David's, and Stephen Latour book, it's quite new, it came out in 2012. <coughs> Excuse me, Vocal Technique and Guide for Conductors, Teachers, and Singers. It's a really wonderful new book. Uh, Julia is a singer and a conductor, and she comes at um, the, the, perspective, the perspective on this book is as a singer in a choral rehearsal. What does a singer need in a choral rehearsal? How can we effectively communicate with singers um, in, in not only their jargon, but also in a way that allows a singer to be to sing healthily and long-term in choral rehearsals? I uh, wish I would have had that book when I started conducting many years ago. I think it's a very good resource. Um, Julia is on the faculty at North Park University in Chicago and is a wonderful singer herself. <clears throat> on the second page, there are a couple of uh, videos that I would encourage you to look at. The Charlotte Adams, David worked out for a beautiful voice. I don't know if a better uh, video for women's voices. In, in dealing with women's voices, Charlotte is fantastic. Charlotte's a great partner. And uh, her, uh, the women that she worked with, her high school women, were fantastic. So I would really uh, highly recommend that video. I have a video on there as well, working with male voices, so both of those can, I hope, be helpful to you. <clears throat> there are lots of other videos and, and so many resources on YouTube that uh, uh, are available to us now. Uh, I, I hesitate to highlight too many. Sandra Snow's video, new video in 2009 called Conducting Teaching, is a wonderful addition as well. If you haven't, uh, Looked at any of those Shaw videos, Robert Shaw videos, preparing a masterpiece, to watch him rehearse Elijah or watch him rehearse Mises um, Lemons, are very recommended. It's just wonderful to get inside his head and watch how he related to singers and, and the, the pacing of the rehearsals and the, the, the rhythmic intensity of those rehearsals. I think it, it, it's, it's a good reminder to us. <clears throat> the web resources on page three were probably out of date when I. So, uh, uh, that, but it can lead you down a path that maybe you didn't know that um, didn't know too much about Course America, what Course America was, for instance, or um, you know, lots of other those possibilities. So I, I take it as a joke off place and head out from there. Under repertoire resources, um, it's somewhat out of date, but John Morris's uh, Paul Settings of the Scriptures with English texts can be a good jumping off place too. It's arranged in biblical order with excuse me, uh, anthem suggested for certain biblical passages. So that if you um, know what the biblical passage is, it's a good place to start. 
Um, so much, of course, has been written since then, uh, so many anthems and so on, but in, in terms of traditional anthems, it could be a good place uh, for help. Tremendous, uh, say Holy Gloria, or um, well, we could go on forever if you do a Fourier record or whatever. Uh, the David Daniels book under choral orchestral issues is very, very helpful, especially it's called Orchestral Music at Handout. And, and you might say, why, why is he talking about orchestral music? Because in the back of the book are lists um, arranged this way uh, a large orchestra. And it will be SATV chorus, large orchestra, 5 to 10 minutes, 10 minutes to 20 minutes, 20 minutes to 30 minutes. Medium-sized orchestra, 5 to 10 minutes, 10 to 20 minutes. But small orchestra, 5 to 10 minutes, which is very, very helpful. Because you might say, you know, I have a choir of 25 people. I want to do something uh, with uh, string orchestra. And uh, it will be listed that way. Or you might say, I require 40 people, uh, but we'd really like to see what might be what we might be able to do with uh, a cantata or uh, something like Mendelssohn or whatever, uh, Vivaldi, Foy, uh, whatever. Um, very, very helpful. And then not only does it list the names of the pieces, it also will tell you how long they are, who publishes them, and what's the instrumentation. Oh, okay, I, I will need two ovals for that piece, or I don't need any ovals for that. Very helpful resource. That is also online. I think it's a subscription online, so maybe your local music library or local library might have a subscription to the orchestral music handbook. Certainly, a lot of music libraries would have that available, but it is available in just book form as well. Um, I, I consulted so many times because I um, I am in charge of a choir that our graduate conductors conducted. It's a choir of 24. And I'm constantly looking for things for them to do with instruments. And this is really, really helpful. Uh, under conducting, um, Jim James Jordan's choral singing step-by-step -step 11 concise lessons for individual or choral ensemble years. I think it's terrific. Um, it's quite new, published in 2011. It's a little bit like the rules of the game. Really helpful uh, from, for novices, novice conductors or novice choral singers or people who have experience, but it's very helpful. It's a good reminder, I think, of what we do. Um, if, uh, and the choral literature, of course, uh, in, in terms of just a big picture of all choral repertoire, is Dennis Schrock's new book, Choral Repertoire, uh, published in 2009. <clears throat> every important choral, uh, every important composer of choral music is there by uh, era and nationality with discussions about them and their output and then listed in what works that they've written at the back. Very, very helpful. Choral um, techniques and resources. Uh, Robert Blocker's the, the Robert Shaw Reader. If, if you don't know that book, it's a, it's a book that, that simply uh, quotes Shaw's letters and, and, and Shaw's uh, writings and so on. And it, it's a little like um, the daily dozen, you know, it, it, you don't, it's not a beat read. It's not something that you'll just read for, for sit down and read the whole book, but bit by bit, and what, I, whenever I read the Shaw Reader, I'm always encouraged because he's, he gets so frustrated with people who skip rehearsals. I feel so good when people skip Robert Shaw's rehearsals. That's fantastic. So, I feel justified. 
as well. And I also feel the, in partnership with someone who is really terrific. Um, Barbara Harlow's book, The Art and Science of Planning and Coral Fountain. I think it's a terrific. Uh, Barbara owns uh, Santa Barbara Music, if you know that publishing there are also resources there. If you do anything in foreign languages, um, the, the translation books of the German, the Latin, the French, and the Hebrew, those books are listed there too. Um, we'll say have saved all of us a lot of time. And, and not only uh, translations, but also what I find particularly helpful is background information. And where did, where did the text for the maps come from? Where, where, where did this, uh, where did secret share books, where did that text come from? Those, it's very helpful. And then uh, under aesthetics, uh, I would particularly recommend Stacey Horn's new book, Imperfect Harmony, Finding Happiness Singing with Others. It was published, uh, came out about two weeks ago, um, and published in, 19, in 2013, 1913, getting my age right. <laughs> it published in 2013, and her premise is that life is better when you sing quiet. And um, she was, uh, I first heard of this book from an NPR interview uh, in which she was uh, profiled. Um, and she was going through a very difficult time in life. And uh, she happened to be walking on the street in New York and she saw that there was a choir that was going to rehearse and she said, I should do that. I should, that should help. And it changed her life. And uh, many of us could say stories over and over again of, of lives that have been changed by a scene together. Um, and it, it, she sees it as a healing experience to, to sing together in part. Since that interview, since I read that interview, which probably about a month ago, um, there was an article published uh, about heart rates, that heart rates begin to be singed by singing in choirs. We breathe together. We breathe in basically the same amount of time because we sing a whole phrase together. Heart rates, be, heart rates begin to be aligned for people who sing in choirs. And another article that came out that said singing in choirs is better for you than yoga. So, <laughs> for my, um, for my uh, people, my friends who are devoted yoga ease, is that a word? I'm not sure. Yogaites. Um, I'd just like to know that. I'm not all bad that I don't do yoga, but that I actually sing in a choir. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> that it can be uh, helpful. Um, I think that we sometimes, or those of us in the game, sometimes overlook that, uh, helping others find the benefits of that. It's not just because we're making notes and rhythms happen and text happen at the same time, but it's also what happens in that whole experience that can make our lives better. So, I, I leave that with you and let you uh, use it as you wish. Uh, I frequently say that the greatest conductors are those with the greatest imaginations. I firmly believe that. It's not the weirdest imaginations, it's not the most off uh, the edge imaginations, but, but the greatest conductors are those who approach choral music or orchestral music or piano or singing with an imagination that's not only based on, on what is in the score itself, but what they bring to experiences, um, what they've heard before, how they imagine that it could happen. The greatest conductors are those with the greatest imaginations or with the most developed imaginations, because imaginations can be developed. 
I also believe that great rehearsals are the result of the conductor's score-based imagination, score-based dream. They come to a rehearsal and it becomes alive and engaging and interesting and focused because of the imaginative mental images that we bring to that rehearsal, in which we say, how can it be any different than what the sound that I'm bringing in my head already that I would like for a part of the Great rehearsals are the result of the dissatisfaction with okay, a dissatisfaction with the, I'd love for you to join me in what I'm imagining and how this could sound, and, and the communication of, of, uh, of what we were singing last night, uh, instant um, scorn and crave. Those imagination words, those color words that bring us to someplace other than just the V on B3, the S right before the beat. <clears throat> Great rehearsals are the result of the conductor's overwhelming desire to match the sound she or he hears in their head to the sound he or she imagines. So it, you know, I said that a little bit the sound that you hear coming back to you, to what you already imagined. So how do we build this score-based dream? How do we build an imagination based on what's in front of us? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How do we implement that and then progress from imagination through improvisation? Because great rehearsals are part improvised, are thought about and planned and, and focused and all of those sort of things, but then improvised. Just as a great jazz musician doesn't start from scratch, a great jazz musician can play a scale in every key with all of the progressions in all of the keys, and then it suddenly becomes the possibility of improvising in that mode. That's what we do in rehearsal. How do we progress from imagination to improvisation to inspiration? Which, was what, which is what we would like to have happen in the worship service or in the concert. How does it come alive? We have lived with it for weeks in the rehearsal. Our singers have lived with it a long time. But those folks who listen to it for the very first time, how do we bring the life to them in a way that says what we want to say? So, I'd like to use a little anagram here. Um, <clears throat> a little anagram called Listen. And the first is learn the score. What do we mean by learn the score? What's involved in learning the score? Well, it might, and probably does, uh, pay attention to the structure of the piece. Is it strophic? Which a lot of our music if in the church is going to be strophic because a lot of it will be based on hymn tune with, with a stanza of text and another stanza of text. Or is it ABA? Or is it something a little more complex than that? What's the structure? I very much encourage us to look for the big the big picture, the the level, which is absolutely opposite of the way that I would like to do it. Because as a pianist, I would love to play from the beginning to the end, dig in to make every phrase beautiful if possible. I'd like to shape everyone as I go. And that doesn't see the big picture that I'm living in every phrase. Living in every phrase is okay. But at the beginning, I really believe the best is to see the big picture. The best is to zoom out in your Google Maps and to see the state that you're looking at before you zoom in to the street and the house that you really want to follow. Right? That's not the easiest thing to do sometimes. It's singing for us. It's <clears throat> if you're driving to Colorado, and I used to, I grew up in northern Kansas, so when you drive to Colorado, when you cross the state line, you should see the mountains, which is never the case, right? If you drive to Colorado, they're way ahead of you. There's a lot of Colorado for 
crazy the mountains on the top. So, so when you see those mountains, that's the big picture. And it's a long time before you actually get to walk on trails. That's what we're talking about in this. It's absolutely the opposite of GPS. Because in GPS it says turn left in 500 feet. We have no idea what's coming up after that. We have no idea what's coming up before that, but you know that at exactly that moment. That's the opposite of a, of a wonderful way to study a score, I believe. Um, for those of us of a certain age who remember when you used to print out the map quest directions, you know, that you could never read when you were driving at night because it was too dark in the car and the print was too small. Well, now we don't have to do it because Jill can yell at us from our GPS. <laughs> turn, turn, you idiot. Um, anyway, so analyze big to little structure, overall structure. Uh, phrase lengths. Now we're getting into a, a little smaller. Is this a four bar phrase? Is this a six bar phrase? Is this a three bar phrase? Well, if it is, then, that's, then you have a real good possibility of messing up. Because in a three bar phrase, we're not used to that. We're used to four bar phrases and two bar phrases, but once in a while there's a five bar phrase. So maybe that is why the choir doesn't want to sing that so correctly. Or maybe that's why you forget to bring in the, the solos at that time, because that phrase isn't a little bit longer. What about the textual musical interplay? Is there a reason that when the word scorn was said, for example, that harmony was the way it was? Is there a reason that on the word crave, the harmony was the way it was? Is there a reason why, why the composer at that moment went into a polyphonic texture as opposed to a homophonic texture? Those are the sort of interplay now that we begin to, to live with and, and say, what is the composer saying, number one? Number two, what can I say through what the composer has given us? The interplay of music, and maybe there isn't much interplay of music and text. Certain styles, certain eras, certain time periods will have less one-to-one -one correlation. Other time periods will have absolute one-to-one -one correlation. Or is it a bigger picture correlation? Is this entire section dealing with peace? Um, and, and therefore the music is, is a calm texture or calm harmonic language during that time. Or is the whole, this whole section, um, if you know uh, one of the choruses in creation, convulsion, that is there a reason why all of those loops happen in that very dramatic music? Interplay of music and text. If it's in a foreign language, how about the translation? If, you haven't, if it hasn't been given to you. How about editing it? I, I find that's one of I, I love that process personally, and maybe it's just because of meetings I like to fill in the O's and fill in the B's, alright. But, but but I love the process of editing. I'd love to figure out where all of the final consonants happen. Put the rests in. Put the breath marks in. Absolutely figure it out. Um, if we had time would have had more time last night in the heavens are telling. There would have been a lot of edits put in that score so that we would all know exactly where those T's are going to line up and suddenly realize that sopranos and basses, even in that polyphonic texture in the end, are, are here, are doing this together and lining up and entering together. Uh, the, the tenors are entering a bar ahead of everybody else, and that has a, a very uh, remarkable um, uh, musical moment to bring that to, to come alive in that sort of way. <clears throat> It could be that if we edited beautifully the offertory at the beginning, that we would say to the sopranos, your mezzo piano and everybody else's piano. Or your mezzo forte and everybody else's piano. Which will help in balance issues. Editing in such a way of articulating consonants, 
Maybe it has to do with, with dynamic markings. Maybe it has to do with staccatos to noodles and so on. Um, I am a firm believer in this. Do we mark every note? Do we mark certain things so that they become, they carry through a certain section? Absolutely. And, and if there are possibilities of, of uh, having the singers do that, of having them put into their score, insisting they put those things in their score, pencils are, are their friends. They don't have to be just sharpened and, and put in their, you know, on top of their ears. Um, but they really can be used to mark everything that we talk about. <clears throat> We might want to know something about the composer's background. Say we're doing a little Maybe we want to know something about where was involved during that time. Who sang it? Do we really know it was sung by women? Yes. All of that. Yes. The low C's? Yes. We do know the low D's because it's in D major. There's a reason it's in D major because it was sung by women. And there were women who had low D's. And so it was not an SATV piece. It was a women's piece originally. We do know that sort of thing. But that's very interesting. It's very interesting, I think. To know that, that most of these women were, were uh, orphans, that, that were living in, a, in an orphanage, and many of them were deformed because uh, sexually transmitted diseases were rampant in, in Venice at the time, and their mothers had given them up when they were born with these deformities, given them up to the orphanage, but many of them were incredibly talented and incredibly beautiful singers. And, and many of their performances were given behind screens so that no one had to look at them. But could hear these incredibly beautiful sounds coming from up there. Well, that, has some, that says something about his speed. Um, and, and says something about his work with him. It also says something. It's, it, uh, Vivaldi was a great violinist, a great string player. Many of these young women became very fine violinists because of his work with them. Those sort of things are, are helpful to us to know what, what sort of emotion to bring to them. If we're, if we're doing a Bach Cantata, say we're doing Yezu Joy Advances Harmony, it would be interesting to know when, where was Bach Cantata and why, where, if we could find out, which given the internet today, we can find out almost everything there is in the internet, which is fantastic. And everything you read on the internet is true. <laughs> if it says Wikipedia, trust it. It's perfect. It's easy. Um, um, but, don't be afraid to, to uh, and my sense is that there are also people in our choirs who find that fascinating and be our allies in helping us uh, find that sort of information. What about the history of the work? Um, say we were involved in the when did Vivaldi do it and why did he do it? Do we know anything about that? The questions I always encourage us to ask are who, what, why, when, and where? Who sang it? Who, 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 who composed it? Who sang it? Who, did, who was it written for? Why, what uh, is the piece about? What is the text about? Where did the text come from? Why was it written? And uh, therefore, why do we do it? And what do we want to accomplish by doing this piece? And why did we choose this piece for this particular moment in time, for this moment in the service, for this moment in the concert? When was, uh, if it's an old piece, maybe when was it first performed? Or if it's a new piece, when, when if, was written yesterday, well, that's important. That will give us another uh, uh, perspective on how this piece might be done. The older the music, the less information we have about how it should be performed, and the older the music, the less latitude we have in making choices. That's great. Uh, that's just how we live. If we're going to do, um, I, I did Bach B minor mass for the first time uh, last November. There are thousands of choices to do it. How long, how short, how fast, 
who's most important at any given moment. Thousands of choices, but if I were doing a piece that was written yesterday, almost every one of those choices have been notated by the composer. It's just that those are just some of the differences between then and now. <clears throat> Next, still in the step of learning the, the score is learn the parts. Whether you need to be able to sing them or not, I, I, that's completely up to you. But we don't, we, what we need to know before we come to the first rehearsal is whether mistakes are going to be. If you make a mistake, somebody else is going to. If you make a mistake, somebody else is going to make a whole next more. Because you're a pro, and, and you're probably not going to make any mistakes. But you just by, by singing through the piece, or playing through the piece, or looking even through the piece, just, you know, if there's a major third or minor third, you're going to mess up. It's just going to happen. It's just going to happen. If there's a third in the line, it's just not going to work. It's not going to be right the first time through. Chances are, often there are mistakes. So we figure that out. We bring and 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 those knowledges then because that knowledge then becomes uh, a help in, in aiding in an efficient and, and effective rehearsal. <clears throat> what is the harmonic? What is the harmonic language? As, as we study the score. Well, this is pretty common practice. This is this is standard uh, practice. That's not going to be so difficult. The, the piece that we did at the end of the rehearsal last night, Little Morning Manchester, the harmonic language of, of that uh, uh, hymn tune setting last night is a little more difficult. Therefore, we need to figure out what that, that contrapuntal section at the end is going to take a little more rehearsal time than the beginning, where it's a news and answers back and forth. What, and, and then, as we learn this far, what's the big story? We're, we're storytellers. We're, we're not just conductors, but we tell stories. It, with the sounds that we make, with the words, you, you know, when, when I first became a conductor a long, long time ago, somebody said, well, I'm, I'm a poor conductor because I love words. And at that point, I didn't love words as much as I do now. I actually didn't realize how much I love words. But we are poor conductors, I hope, because we love words. We love to tell stories through the sounds and the combination of sounds. Which is remarkable. <clears throat> okay, so I also encourage us to listen to recordings of the pieces that we have. Uh, there are very few new pieces written that are not that do not have recordings on the publisher's web on the publisher's uh, websites. Very few. Uh, and <clears throat> if I'm working with some composer to get a piece published, or or uh, if uh, Publishers looking at a piece, they'll say, We need a recording to go on the website. Well, that's fantastic. So, those recordings can be helpful to us in, in generating an imagination, can be helpful to our choirs in, in generating their imagination to the piece as well. I'm a, a real proponent of, of listening to as many recordings as we can get our, get our hands on of various pieces. Um, I know people who say, Don't ever listen to a recording because you'll mimic the recording. Mimic great recordings. You can never. <laughs> Step. 
What's your dream for this piece? Let the text tell you a story and then we tell the story to others. Nothing is ordinary, nothing is overdone. Nothing is just there. It all becomes alive. We don't sing along with anything. As I, I'm always uh, I'm a, uh, a little frustrated and, and always a little surprised with, with uh, sometimes when I work with young singers and it, and it feels like we're singing along as opposed to making it come alive. We sing along all the time. Music in the manual, music in the stereo, music in our iPods. Uh, we sing along all the time, but when we're in, in the world setting, we bring it all alive. It is ours. It comes from within us. So we have to make Are there color words in each phrase, for instance? How about scorn and credit? Those are two color words. How about uh, if we were singing the piece, sure, on a shining night? Sure, that's a color word. Shining is a color word. Night is a color word. Those are three color words in that very first phrase. He could have, the book could have said, um, this shining night, completely different connotation. Sure on the shining night. Just by saying the word sure says to me, could be the way. We have never experienced it this way before. This is this is a moment. Sure on the shining night. It also says to me that it's not a normal night. How could it, how could the night be normal if it's shining? Well, uh, there are all sorts of possibilities. Um, Yesu, joy of man's desire. He didn't say, Yesu, uh, uh, son of God, uh, our heart's desire. But he says, Yesu, joy of man's desire. That's a couple of words. There's a, a word to bring alive in a way that says something important to the people that were listening. What do you want to say to those colors? Set the stage. Set the costumes. Set the lighting. Set the lighting. And no choral singers. In your point. In my point. First of all, I don't like to say my choir because it isn't my choir. I don't know. <laughs> Believe me, I don't know. <laughs> but why? What? If we're just world singers, that's that's one thing. But if if everyone is an actor or an actress, we bring that text alive in a different way. If we are not in an artificial way, not in a manipulative way, but in a way that says, "This is what I am saying because of." saying this, I'm actually telling you the story. Every note deserves our love. There are no unworthy notes or words. Every phrase deserves to be communicated. Every vowel needs to be unified. Uh, if there are 30 people in the corner, there are 30 vowel possibilities. <laughs> and everyone is unworthy except one. <laughs> and we'd like to unify on that one vowel sound that the conductor thinks is beautiful. There are no great choirs, only great conductors. There are no bad choirs, only bad conductors. That's absolutely true. I believe that with all my heart. And so the, the, to unify takes a, a conductor, a lead of imagination, because all of us will bring, everybody, everybody in the choir will bring to story. We need to mark in this imagination, as, as we have edited before, we need to make sure that those markings are our scores, to mark dynamics, to mark breaths. I also encourage us to fill our bank account with musical possibilities. As I mentioned about listening to recordings, do that. Fill our imagination account with possibilities. I'm not so great at imagining from a blank slate. I need possibilities. And uh, having uh, experienced the 
things, we bring those perspectives to rehearsal. We all do. <clears throat> listen to great bands, listen to great orchestras, listen to great choirs, sing to great choirs. Um, I used to stand in the back uh, of the symphony band rehearsals at the University of Michigan. The symphony band plays so beautiful. Uh, and, and say, I love for the choir or something. It's so in tune. It's so rich and velvety and, and so everyone is is breathing together, everyone is imagining together. The sound is so beautifully balanced. And uh, I one time said to a player, one of the players in the band, I said, why is it when you play for Professor X that it is always because parenthetically every single different conductor that I heard conduct the group was a different band. And and one time uh, we had five different conductors conducting on the same concert with the Michigan Glee Club and I was conducting the Glee Club a long, long time ago. And there were, if there were five different conductors, there were five different Glee Clubs on the stage because we are always faithful than we are. And a group will always sound different for a different conductor without the conductor saying anything. And not one of those conductors said, would you sing slightly out of tune for me? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other ensemble did. Not one conductor said, would you sing that rather brashly for me? And, and, and yet it did. Not one conductor said, could that be warmer and rounder? And yet it was for that conductor. Just by how they spoke, just by how they walked on the podium, just by how they, they uh, perhaps demonstrated for just a minute. Okay, so, <clears throat> fill our musical account of possibilities. This is great. So I, I, I said to that kid, why is it that when you play for so-and-so, it's so beautiful? And he said, well, he simply expressed us to play our very best all the time. And that was it. I mean, it wasn't that, well, he creates space or his gestures are so effective or whatever. It was just, when he stands up there, we just know we have to do our best. That's pretty great. Pretty. It's not rocket science. <laughs> but, this, but the bar was set in, a, in an inspirational, and it just, this is who we are when we work on the script. Okay. So, we develop an imagination, then we show it. Some of us stand in front of ensembles and conduct with our bodies. Some of us play behind the organ console. Some of us play behind the pianos. We will show the music no matter where we are. No matter where we are, we will show the music. We become the music. We show our dream with our body. We are a gesture-based profession. We are leaders with our bodies, with our arms, with our hands, with our face. We demonstrate, they demonstrate. Um, you were all brave last night in doing things, gestures and songs that we worked on together that, that created a different sound, that created a more unified sound. Um, we give a picture, they demonstrate, they reflect what we see. We give a picture of the sound that we mentioned. Conducting is the con communication of musical ideas through pantomime, which conducting is. That's a pretty good definition. Then it's our goal to to become that music with our body. If the music is gentle, then our bodies. If the music is articulate, then our bodies. If the music is dramatic, then our bodies should reflect that. <clears throat> we provide the motivation and they provide the sound. We become the sound. We show our dream with our bodies. Now here's, the, here's a key point that I hope you remember. We show our dream, we don't show what we're hearing. I hope. I hope we show our dream. I'll say that's a lot easier to say than it is to do.
because when we hear things coming back that we don't particularly like, it's easy to become that as opposed to become the answer. <laughs> it could be in raising a child that yelling back is not the right way to go. <laughs> but it's the easiest, but probably not the most effective. The same is true when we're connecting. To reflect what we imagine, all of us saying, okay, that needs to be softer, that needs to be more intense as we build that crescendo, showing them rehearsed, bring them back to us. And developing in them uh, a sense that they actually can read your gesture, which then says that our gesture has to match the sound that, that we are imagining. Um, uh, Rod Eichenberger usually says, uh, or often says in his video, what they see is what, they, what you get. What they see is what you get. So if you're showing something, then that's what you get back. But there's a, there, I believe there's also a step before that is what you think is what you show, is what they see, is what you get. So it's really what you're thinking that then will determine what you're showing. Does that make sense? That's a, it's a little stepping back a little uh, further. So uh, uh, I guess as a conductor it's important that we think the right things, that we live in the imagination sound. We don't live in it to the exclusion of what's going on around us, but we live in way to show what we would really like to hear. We show our dream, not what we're hearing. And we say words, if we have to say words, and we do have to say words, we say words that, that evoke our imagination. For instance, could that sound like the back of your grandmother's hand? Could that be as gentle as that incredibly soft fur on the back of could that be as dramatic as the puppy who stole your slipper? Something that, that, that evokes a color that brings it on. Okay, next step. Transform. What you hear to what you'd like to hear. Transform what you hear to what you'd like to hear. Into what you imagine. Improve what comes back to you. And anything is fair game. We call this rehearsing. Anything's very clear. Maybe they need to walk. Maybe they need to stand. Maybe they need to sit. Maybe they need to use their arm. Maybe they need to. Maybe their posture needs to be better. Maybe their their breath needs to be deeper. Maybe their the valve, valve needs to have more shape. Maybe they need to inhale the fish. Maybe they need to inhale the valve. Anything is fair game. Every phrase deserves your attention. Does it have enough breath? Is the posture great? Is there height in the sound? Does it seem normal? If it seems normal, how can we make it seem more beautiful? Match your concept with the sound that returns to you. Maybe that has to do with vowel color. Maybe that has to do with diction. Maybe that has to do with intonation. Maybe it has to do with enunciation, how they're shaping about. Maybe it has to do with you moving and they moving. I think sometimes simply standing and sitting can, can solve a million problems. Simply varying tempo can solve a million problems. Two clicks faster on a metronome can make it easier. Two clicks slower on the metronome to make a piece work. And we can rehearse for hours and say, why is this, why is it always out of tune? And simply slowing it down a little bit might fix everything up. Or speeding up a little bit might fix everything up. Maybe the order of the rehearsal needs to be changed. Maybe it's not working because there were two slow pieces in a row. Or maybe it was because there were two fast pieces in a row. Or maybe it was because we started with a fast piece and we should have started with a slow piece to allow them to begin to concentrate more. All of that. Uh, rehearsals are, uh, we'll talk about this afternoon, but rehearsals are like great meals. 
start with something and we need to progress to something else and we need to, to end with something. And we'll talk a little bit more about pacing of that. Uh, but we can accomplish a lot in the transformational stage by thinking along those lines. Maybe they are energetic, maybe they're not energetic. Maybe, maybe it's um, been a difficult week for some people in the choir. You know, they, people come to, to rehearsals because they need something. Or they, they want to get something out of it. But what can we give them in this transformational process, which we call rehearsal, that will make their life better than they know? That's, that's our goal. <clears throat> Maybe there's a difference between rehearsing in a choir room and rehearsing in a sanctuary. We all know that's Maybe there's a difference between rehearsing on a concert stage and rehearsing in a choir room. Maybe if we simply went around that globe standing out in the lobby, the sound would be better than sitting out there. It would be. All of those, the, simply changing the venue, simply standing in a circle as opposed to sitting behind each other, could make a huge difference. We call that in rehearsal. You are engaged, they are engaged, physically, emotionally, intellectually, and vocally. All of that is part of what we do in the rehearsal process. And now, with, with apologies to my third grade spelling teacher, Inspire. I can come up with another one. So, um, what's that last step? The step that brings them alive to the people who are listening to it? As opposed to, it's been brought alive to the people who are singing it. They've been bringing it alive for weeks before those who hear it. We, in the rehearsal process, have been singing it over and over, and we've finessed vowels, and we've finessed phrases, and, and we have, have lived with those words in a way that we took them home with us and, and couldn't get them out. Um, uh, I did a performance last week at the Berkshire Choral Festival of uh, uh, Vaughn Williams' Five Mystical Song. I can't get them out of my head. It's in my head forever. Could it be worse? No. Yeah. I mean, could it be worse? A lot, yes. Because those are some of the greatest words that I know. Uh, we, we give that gift to the people who live in the ensembles that we conduct. So we put it all together. We finish it just in this step. What does that mean? Uh, we, uh, what it really means is that we begin it for the listeners. We finish it ourselves, but we begin it for the listeners who get to hear it once. And it has to be in, in a communicative, inspirational way that says to them, here's what I want you to hear. Here's the story. It needs to be gritty, it needs to be communicative, it needs to be burnished, it needs to be polished. In some way, the choir becomes the music. They're not singing the music. They're not singing about the music. They become the music. There are no observers in this process, in the inspiration process. Nobody's standing by looking at it. In other words, the choir members are not just sort of engaged, they're fully engaged. They've savored every phrase, they've tasted every vowel. We hope. We hope they've connected with the text in a way that has meaning. There are no choral singers, there are only great actors and actresses who are engaged in everything, projecting what it is. We're all ministers at that point. Every member of the choir and the conductor and the players. We tell stories, communicate our faith. No one is passive in this process. All are engaged. So let's look a little bit at um, the Psalm 23, which I believe you picked up. And we're going to sing through, and then we're going to analyze a little bit, and then talk about 
some imagination based on this piece. And then, um, I kind of that. So stand up, if you wouldn't mind. Let's sing through a couple of the ways. I'll stand up here to my side.
Good. Great, great, great. I see. Let's look at it now structurally. We'll rehearse this piece this afternoon and on the basis of, of the session this afternoon. Uh, and lots of... Would, would you play, um... Would you play more 95? Would you play more 95? Because it would be nice to look at the bases there because they've been asleep. 
<laughs> and, and I would love for that sound to be different. And there was a reason why, uh, there is a reason as a conductor, as we pace this performance, as we pace the communication of this text, there's a reason why the basses come in, and there's a reason uh, uh, there, that's a new sonority that will make a difference to the congregation. There, it, no, they have, okay, now let's go a little bit further. Is it the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want, or is it the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, we have to decide, breath and breath, in the three presentations of that. And then, he says, he maketh me, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Today is Thursday. Today is Thursday. That's what he's just done. He maketh me, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He could have just said, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. So as we look at this, as we analyze this, we have to think, why did he do that? And what can I say because he has done that? It can't be. He maketh me, he maketh me to lie down. It has to be somehow. He maketh me, he maketh me to lie down. There has to be some different community development simply by how he's repeated that first fragment. Mozart does that all the time. Amen. Whether you 
actually put that into words or not, I'm not sure that that is so important as that you make sure that the music moves ahead. Then he says, yea, though I walk, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Again, today, today is Thursday, and we're going to Yea, though I walk, yea, though I walk. The intensification of a repetition, the intensification is caused by repetition, is not normal. We don't usually speak that way. Today. 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 We say it again for a reason. And, and then we'll just bring it to And how does he match it with technical? How does he match it with musical language? How does he match it with dynamics? How does he match it with articulation? How does he match it with, uh, match it with musical expression? That's what we do when we analyze music and develop our imagination. So, we tell stories. And as far as I'm going to go, as far as I'm going to go, as far as I'm going to go, been effective uh, in our analyzing. We apply what we imagine to the rituals coming up, and that's what we'll do this afternoon. So, imagine. Improvise, lead rehearsals based, that are spontaneous, that are efficient, that are productive based on our imagination of the score. And then inspire and tell a story. The Lord is my shepherd. There's a call.